are listening to a podcast from The National. You're listening to The National's Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelson, and today I'm joined by Andy Scott, a former business reporter for The National, who is now one of our multimedia gurus, to talk about a couple of the big stories in business of the past few days. We'll start with the latest developments in the brewing Tesla saga, and then take a look at the state of currencies in what is proving to be a turbulent time for many of them. Following that, I have a chat with Sudesh Giryan, Chief Operating Officer at the UAE-based multinational remittances outfit Express Money, about how volatility in the currency market affects his company and the wider industry. First though, just what road is Tesla heading down? Oh, very good. I see what you did there, Chris. Yeah, I've heard there's a bit of a bad smell around Musk. Yeah, um, it sort of started last week when uh, the the chief executive of Tesla, Musk, um, absolutely stunned shareholders and analysts alike when he tweeted out of the blue, seemingly, that uh, he was planning to take the company private. This is despite the fact that it's, you know, it's long been hemorrhaging billions um, of dollars and he's never made a profit. It seems to me that Elon Musk has tied himself in knots over the last let's say months, since, I mean, even when you got run through the Thai cave deal, remember mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. he was the, the seemingly this white knight coming in to help yeah. and then spoiled his copybook at the end of that by making some disparaging comments. About one of the uh, divers. Yeah, yeah. and it, yeah. it seems as though the, 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 the tweeting is getting himself into deeper and deeper trouble. Now, I know presidents at the moment can tweet themselves into a lot of problems, but I'm surprised that this maverick genius seems to have led himself into this ridiculous tangled web. Well, I think it's interesting that you, you, know, you mentioned the fact that uh, certain presidents, um, you know, are going by no the names. name of No Name, uh, uh, you know, use tweet as their, Twitter as their personal um, sort of conversation uh, with the world. Well, not even conversation because it's all one way. But to a certain extent, Musk sees himself in exactly the same light. He views himself as one of the most powerful people on the planet, and he's a genius, and nobody else understands what he's saying, and he can do anything he likes. That's as maybe, but the fact is, he has set himself up, and as I said, he his brand was fairly robust mm-hmm. up until, let's say, six months ago when the tweet started to become slightly erratic. Now he seems to be leading himself deeper and deeper into mm-hmm. trouble as Tesla goes deeper and deeper mm-hmm. into trouble. Mm-hmm. And you wonder what's his end game in this? Yeah, um, I mean that was obviously brought to a head uh, last week when um, you know he made this tweet about taking it private. It's it's of relevance in this region particularly because obviously um, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund has built a five percent stake in the company, which was revealed recently. And again, he tweeted this that he has been in talks with the fund about taking Tesla private. The PIF has uh, has not said anything about that specifically, and it doesn't normally do that. But it's an example, along with um, the 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 you know recent problems that Tesla itself has had with you know fires, crashes, this, that, and the other, of how he seems to um, be, the more the more problematic the situation becomes, the more bullheaded he becomes. Um, and it's it's quite strange. I don't know if it's a peculiarity of multi-billionaires or, or, or whether it's just something that is a sign that he's under severe pressure. The fact is, he is a special mm. case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, you, one would have assumed that he understood PR. You, you were showing me some statistics before mm-hmm. of what Tesla's sales have done in Europe recently. Yeah. They haven't been tanked. good. Yeah, they've tanked in the first half. In fact... Um, 
in Switzerland, they're down first half year on year, 37%. 31% in the UK, 29% in Germany, 28% in Sweden. Now, they have risen in Norway and the Netherlands, but the only reason for that is that, that, that uh, buyers in those countries are offered heavy sub- subsidies on, on electric cars. So, yeah, you, you look at Tesla as a company right now and you're thinking surely he should be mastering PR to, 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 for damage limitation, but he doesn't seem to be doing that. Not, well, he seems to be doing the opposite mm. of that. However, you also said earlier that Porsche have got a new uh, e-car, electric car coming out. Yeah. Jaguar have had the A-Pace out yeah. for a significant, at yeah. least a year. Yeah. And they are now, the vi- you think, are far more viable than a Tesla. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Taycan, uh, which is now taking orders. Um, which is and the is, Porsche. Yeah, the Porsche. And it, uh, it's a beautiful car, man. I mean, it is really, really stunning. It knocks the socks off any Tesla, and st- Tesla's not a bad-looking car. And from every single review that I've read, they all say both the Taycan and the I-Pace um, by far uh, beat Tesla's offerings in terms of build and ride quality, performance and value for money. And the fact is they all cost around the same. Yes, but, and, and you know this, I think this is an age thing. The fact is Apple in the late 80s, early 90s was a Mavericks brand. It saw, you know, if you had it, you felt a little bit special for owning it, knowing what it could do. Even though it wasn't Windows, everyone had Windows, you were a bit beige if you had windows you're definitely an electric blue if you had uh, apple i think tesla is exactly the same i think people of our age yes porsche and jaguar still have that solid dependable bit special uh badge of honor whereas tesla and i put this to two millennials who i work very closely with i said who would you go for tesla porsche jaguar and we got a split Mm. one porsche one Tesla. Mm-hmm. Tesla is definitely a brand which they react to. Mm-hmm. It's definitely aspirational. So maybe Musk has seen that. He realizes what he does. The more bullish about it, the more outre he is about it, it makes his brand stronger. It's, it's possible. Um, I, I would, uh, if you draw the analogy further with Apple, you look at somebody like Steve Jobs um, and and currently Steve Cook. They were supreme PR operators. Tim absolutely, Cook. sorry, Tim Cook, absolutely supreme. They, it was them who made you think that Apple was electric blue compared to the beige of Microsoft, and it was their message and the way they got their message across that that fired that uh, market. We hadn't seen anybody at Apple who has been as um, eccentric, really, as Musk appears to be being at the moment. So we can't. Well, there isn't anything to to gauge ab- about the potential uh, effect or damage that his uh, messaging, um, current messaging, may have on the brand. Because the one thing millennials are is cool, and I wouldn't go that far. They think they're cool. <laughs> they think they're cool. Um, it's all right. They won't be listening to this. No, <laughs> and, and coolness is is part of te- Tesla's cachet. It certainly was to start with, and it has been, you know, the luxury electric brand for for years. Um, and it completely blew the market apart when it arrived. It, it was eye boggling. Yeah, unique it was. Yeah, but we don't really have a benchmark by which to measure Musk's um, outbursts recently of a, a similar high tech. Um, market-busting company that came along, such as Apple, for instance. So we, we don't really know. I mean, 
I don't know, not being a millennial, whether I think his outbursts are, are cool or not. I'm not necessarily thinking they're cool. I think people who are a connection with Tesla, with the brand, I mean, mm. I mean that, that, that emotional connection, understand that when you're breaking new ground, you might have to break eggs. And mm. that might mean going against conventional wisdom mm. and possibly the conventional wisdom of a PR game saying, no, I don't care what you're saying about mm. this. Now, I know he's fallen to uh, problems with the SEC, mm. uh, but the fact is Tesla or Elon Musk are under pressure. It certainly seems so. It certainly seems so. I mean, he personally is under pressure, obviously, because, as you say, the US Securities and Exchange Commission have reportedly launched an inquiry um, because because of the rules that are in place to pre prevent market manipulation and the lawsuit. Um, on Monday, he tweeted that he was, in order to kind of, I think, to backstep on this, because the problem that he got into it was that he said he had secured funding yes during trading hours but that was with the wasn't he talking then about saudi arabia since then since then he has said he has been in talks with the board of the pif about taking the company private he has not said that they have provided uh, anything at all he has not given any name of anybody who has provided any funding he's just said funding is secured he argues in his tweets that by having spoken to uh, the saudi board over the past few months he says that that is what he meant by funding is secured. Now, by any stretch of the imagination, they That's haven't, secured, they haven't yes. secured it. Yeah. Um, and whether they would or not is an entirely different question. So he is in trouble with that, um, potentially. And he's, it's, he has lawsuits now after that claiming that, um, that uh, he's committed security fraud. Um, whether he has or not is open to uh, interpretation um, further down the line, I presume. He has... Presumably, he didn't want that. I mean, it's, it's not something... I can't believe it's part of his PR, um, you know, strategy to get done by the SEC, should that eventually happen. Um, because there's a fine line between appearing kind of, you know, maverick and, and a bit off the wall and a bit cool and appearing dumb. Anyway, that's uh, enough Tesla. Let's talk Turkey. Oh, see what I did yeah. there? Yes, they're getting roasted. Ah, yes. Well, Turkish lira has been um, on the demise for, for weeks now. Um, it's a complicated and convoluted story to do with um, uh, the stand taken by President Erdogan, um, markets' interpretation of his control of the central bank, the decision not to in increase uh, interest rates recently, which stunned the market watchers, um, and... Uh, the imposition of U.S. Um, sanctions over a, a detained past U.S. pastor. Um, and that plunge had become a rout over the past few days. And as contagion from the lira's demise, uh, it hit other emerging market currencies, including the rand, the ruble, the Mexican peso, and the Indian rupee that all had heavy falls. In fact, in the past few days, the lira hit as low as almost seven to the dollar. The rupee was at seventy to the dollar. It was record low, and that hasn't really recovered uh, today. Um, on Tuesday, uh, the rand hit fourteen five. Mexican peso at twenty to the dollar, and ruble almost sixty eight to the dollar. But out of nowhere, it seems um, like a phoenix from the flames. On Tuesday, the lira bounced back, uh, and the MSCI Emerging Markets Index of Currencies actually ended a four day sequence of losses, rising zero point three percent around mid morning in London. So why? why? What, what did Erdogan do? 
It's not so much what he did. It's I think it came about after on Monday the central bank uh, announced that it was uh, in a statement that it was ready to take all necessary measures to ensure financial stability, particularly promising that it would provide banks with liquidity. All right. Okay. So so they're they're, they're the backstop. So they've kind of stepped in and said, yeah, we we will uh, we'll give banks cash. And basically. have they raised interest rates? No, they haven't. No, and there are some. Um, Market watch is calling for a thousand percent basis point rise, um, which is uh, phenomenal, really. But the lira, the, the lira was was up around seven percent Tuesday afternoon, and uh, that dragged most other affected currencies back up as well. And in fact, um, Turkey's Treasury and Finance Minister Beret Al Bayrak, who incidentally is the son-in-law of the president. And that is another issue of contention yes. uh, for for the markets. It's always bad news when a, a president brings his uh, family on board. It's not viewed very well, no. particularly. No, it's not. Um, you know, the, and and also Erdogan's stand um, over interest rates. I, I think I'm, I'm not mistaken in saying that he recently described interest rate rises as evil. Um, but nevertheless, as I say, the lira was back up seven percent on Tuesday. Um, most others came up, and and the finance minister Barat Al Bayrak is going to speak to around a thousand foreign investors uh, on Thursday. Um, so we'll kind of see what happens then. Of course, the lira and the ruble and the emerging markets not the only um, the only currency to have suffered. Um, the, separately, not nothing to do with with uh, exposure to Turkey in particular. Um, the pound has been taking a hammering since April. Now, after the Brexit vote, it went down, yeah. and then, as you know, it slowly climbed its way back up. It was one forty four before the just before the Brexit vote, and April thirteenth, it was one forty three to the dollar. But since April the thirteenth, it has headed fallen, south again. Fallen south again, yeah. Um, and in fact, it was around one twenty seven to the dollar on Monday. And it's the same old cause: it's Brexit uncertainty. Um, the closer we get to the the March official, it's not. It's not. It's not unsurprising, is it? I mean, I'm I'm surprised that we nearly got to parity again. I presume yeah. that's by yeah. the weakness of other co- currencies. To a certain extent, it is, and also I think, um, as was unexpectedly uh, stronger economic um, uh, data that had come out over that period, I think helped to. I don't know if it would be going too far to say mask the reality, yeah. um, uh, but certainly that helped. And there had been that period of time, obviously, since the decision to leave. And then we're getting very close now to, hang on a minute, we really do need to have some sort of deal in place. And the closer that gets to the March 19 deadline, the more um, worry is building up in the markets. And it wasn't helped last week by the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney and the Trade Minister, uh, Liam Fox, uh, both spooked Sterling saying that uh, the likelihood of a no Brexit deal was now significantly higher than before. In fact, I think it was Fox put it at a sixty percent likelihood of a no deal. Now, how can that be a deal? Well, no deal. Well, exactly, exactly. It's it's a falling off the cliff into oblivion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I mean, why does Liam Fox not understand that? I don't, why they said that particularly? Precisely. I, I don't honestly know. Really, I mean, it, it's it uh, it seems. Peculiarly negative, um, unless, of course, they really do believe that pressure has got to be put on the government to do something more than it is doing to get something in place. Because well, 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 without wanting to seem too flippant, it seems like exactly what Elon Musk did to his own. There are strange similarities. Yeah, yeah, there are. Shoot yourself in the foot, why don't you? Yeah, yeah. it's um, it was a peculiar thing to say. I think, um, although perhaps 
um, not un unrealistic. Um, however, there is an upside, of course. Oh, there good. is an upside. I was hoping I was getting yeah. impressed. Because it's good news for expats, a lower price pound. Um, because if you're sending cash back to the UK, uh, your dirhams being pegged to the dollar will buy you more pounds. And it's remittances we concentrate on next. Earlier this week... Seamless. I yeah, seamless. seamless. I spoke with uh, Sudesh Gurian, the uh, COO of UAE-based Express Money, about his company and the industry in general. Welcome, Sudesh. I wonder if you could, um, just to start with, give us a, um, a sort of a brief overview of the global remittance market today. Sure, Chris. Um, global remittance market is uh, significantly big. Many people don't know this. Uh, in 2018, the remittance market globally is supposed to be worth $616 billion. This far exceeds the official aid received by mm -hmm. many of the uh, developing countries put together globally today. And and this is this is something which goes to all those countries which depend on remittances. Uh, close to $450 billion goes into the um, developing countries, mm -hmm. right, where we have the likes of India, China, Mexico, mm -hmm. Pakistan, Bangladesh, Philippines, and so mm -hmm. on. So um, remittances are very big, and remittances have been growing over a period of time. Back in 2000. Uh, seven remittances were just under four hundred billion dollars, and in twenty eighteen they are six hundred sixteen billion dollars. Wow! Wow! What do you, what's been the driver for that uh, rapid increase? Do you think this is the this is to do with the increasing migration? You know, as long as there is migration, there are remittances. Be it uh, Mexicans uh, migrating to U.S. or the Indians and Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Filipinos migrating to uh, this part of the world. As long as there is migration. Mm -hmm. Obviously, from from the UAE point of view, um, issues such as a strong dollar relative to uh, to other currencies makes a big difference. Um, have you seen uh, increases recently in remittances to the UK from here, given that there's a relatively weak pound at the moment? Certainly, you know this happened. Uh, I think started happening rather right after. Brexit, uh, you know, post Brexit, for the next many weeks, we found a huge surge in remittances going to UK, and mm -hmm. subsequently also as and when there's been an impact in terms of the the pound value. Whenever pound has gone down, uh, remittances have gone up. So that has been a phenomenon that we have seen the last uh, close to two years mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And is that um, obviously that's the primary driver for those spikes? Are there other reasons, um, not necessarily to do with the UK or the pound? that causes um, remittance levels to spike? Yeah, basically what happens is that, as I said, it has a lot to do with uh, migration and also the fact that, take UAE for example, um, UAE's population today is uh, has uh, over-dependence on expatriates. 88% of the UAE population is made up of mm -hmm. expatriates. Mm -hmm. So naturally, you know, 88% of the population earns and most of these people send money back home. So such um, scenarios lead to surge in remittances. And, you know, the examples are similar if you go across the GCC markets today. Most of the GCC countries have uh, expatriates, uh, you know, living there. And most of the people send money back home. And this is not different across the globe today. Mm -hmm. Look at uh, Europe, mm -hmm. for example. A lot of Africans, Asians, and uh, East Europeans who come to uh, the developed uh, part of Europe and they send money back home. Look at U.S., for example, mm -hmm. or Mexicans and other Latin Americans who have come. They make a living and they send money back home. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Middle East is, is one of the largest remittance-sending uh, regions in the world. And indeed, the UAE is third largest um, 
in the world, uh, with the first quarter alone reaching 43 billion dirhams sent back uh, this year. What were the main countries that, that you, what are the biggest amounts of remittances and where are they going? Last year, if you see, um, we saw 161 billion dirhams going out of the UAE. That is just under $45 billion. So that puts uh, UAE on the global map as far as remittances are concerned. World Bank uh, puts UAE at number three in terms of global remittances. If you look at the diaspora mix from the UAE today, the biggest diaspora obviously is India. And um, India is receiving the biggest volume uh, from the UAE among all the countries, mm -hmm. right? Uh, UAE to India is the first fourth largest corridor in the world after U.S. to Mexico, U.S. to China, Hong Kong to China comes UAE to India. Okay. It is worth, you know, $13.5 billion. Mm -hmm. So besides the, U besides the UAE to India corridor, the other significant corridors are UAE to Pakistan, which is somewhere around $4.5 billion. And then you have UAE to Philippines, one of the significant corridors. Then you have UAE to Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. Plus, um, you know, when it comes to the Arab markets, there are markets like Jordan and Egypt that receive significant amount of remittances. Then you have the African markets like Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And there mm -hmm. are many other countries like Uganda, mm -hmm. which are now receiving remittances from this part of the world. Obviously, there is also a, a community that is from Europe. UK is one of those uh, big recipients of remittances mm -hmm. from, from UAE. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a, a sea change at the moment um, occurring with the interest that banks seem to be showing now in how to work with um, companies such as your own. I wonder if you can give us a, a bit of an insight into, into why that sea change is happening and what it is. You know, in the last few years, uh, we have seen banks taking uh, interest in the segment, uh, primarily because of the volume of remittances going out. And it, it, the fact remains that there are um, bank customers and most of them have a remittance net. Earlier I said that 88% of the population in the UAE is made up of expatriates. So most of the bank's customers are anyway uh, expatriates. So they always have a remittance need. When the banks are offering them other services, be it loans or credit cards, there is also a possibility where they can offer remittances. Mm -hmm. And it also brings in stickiness. If I was to, uh, say, remit £100 from here back to um, the UK using a bank, and uh, £100 using a um, remittance house. What kind of roughly were we looking at the, the differences in, in, in cost being for something like that? The, the, the banks used to uh, charge a much higher fee and their rates never used to be great. Um, you know, the, the cost of remittances could have been somewhere around 8 to 10% at times, mm -hmm. but those times have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, off late, we are seeing banks um, competing with the local exchange houses mm -hmm. when it comes to remitting money out of the UAE. And they have also realized that to be able to get a bigger chunk of this business, they need to be attractive in terms of their fees and, and rates. That's how uh, the, the cost of remittances has coming down. Many thanks to Sudesh for that. I'm off to take some pounds out of the ATM to send back to Blighty right now. Uh, thanks also to Andy Scott, who produced this episode of the National Business Extra podcast. And you can find us at your usual app providers and at thenational.ae.